Good evening, and welcome again to RUF's uh, sixth large group of the semester. Uh, as I mentioned before, my name is Nick Bratcher, and I am the campus minister for RUF. As I was thinking about our passage tonight, a question came to my mind uh, to put maybe the, the feeling or the, the context uh, that John and his recipients of his letter are experiencing, put it into maybe our own modern context and it's this. Here's the question. Have, have you ever been led astray by a mentor? Has, it, has like a, a figure you respected or admired ever led you down the wrong path? Uh, have you ever thought that you had someone you could trust uh, actually lure you away from the truth? Uh, maybe it was somebody who is more experienced in a field or who just knows more than you are, more uh, experienced than you are in something and they just stop being reliable. Maybe uh, your mom or dad taught you, if you're like me, maybe your mom or dad taught you how to hold a baseball bat, but then the first time you showed up to practice, your coach was like, that's completely wrong. Do you want to miss every strike? And you felt ashamed, right? Uh, maybe, uh, or maybe it's like to shoot a basketball, you're supposed to hold it a certain way and all that stuff, and then only to find out your parents didn't know what they were talking about. Or uh, maybe uh, you've, had, oh, there's this moment in our collective math education where you find out that uh, letters can also be numbers. And you're like, what? Everybody lied to me up until this point in my life, right? Algebra hits. And you're like, what else is not true? Uh, maybe it was the it was Santa or the Easter bunny when you were like, what else have you been lying to me about, right? You realize that like, maybe, just maybe, these mentors, these people that you trusted uh, cannot actually be trusted. For a while, there's a lingering question that comes with this. If you've lied to me about this, what else have you been keeping from me? Where are my other blind spots? Tonight's passage, 1 John two eighteen through 27, that's what seems to have happened uh, to John's recipients. Uh, but their mentors are not, uh, this is not a secular thing that they're talking about, but rather their brothers and sisters in the church We've called our, our series in First John this semester that you may know because the recipients of John's letter seem to be confused about a number of things about Jesus and the gospel. And that's why John writes, he wants them to know the truth. Now we come to at least one possible reason why his recipients have gotten so confused. Some people in their church went out from them. Though they heard the same good news as everyone else, they have left and gone their own way. This has shaken this young, church, this young church's confidence in the gospel and how they can persevere in faith. Now, John does offer some comfort in the middle of that. Uh, their departure means that while their origin was in the church, their source of life was not, right? They never truly believed, even if they said they did. They do not pass the tests we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks, tests about whether their content of their character matches their profession of faith nor did they pass the final theological one he's going to present in our passage tonight. Instead of belonging to God and one another, they belong to the world all along. Their, de their departure has simply exposed this truth. As John notes in his own gospel in John 17, Jesus gives eternal life to all whom the Father has given him, and he guards them so that not one of them has been lost. Jesus doesn't lose people, and God the Father doesn't give them to Jesus in hopes that he'll keep them 
only to be disappointed. Uh, that's because uh, if that were so, the desires of the Trinity would be uh, conflicting with one another, right? It can only be true that if God gives Jesus believers, they cannot be snatched from his hand. But here's the hard part, right? John offers this condolence, offers this, this, this you know, hey, but they were never really from us. They never really believed. But from our limited perspective, we cannot know who those people are that Jesus has, right? We, we can only see what we observe, which is people who might believe, who say they believe, who come to church, who, who do the things that Christians do. John knows this. And while there is a comfort in knowing that God doesn't lose the people who find their life in him, or as John would put it, are of him, the lingering question is, how do we avoid the fate of those who do not persist, right? In this church, if you can imagine it, they, they just got the gospel. It's, it's, you know, first century. It's still very early in the faith. And there are people who are walking away from it. And they're wondering, is this true? Can I persist in this? Is this something that's good? Here's John's answer in a nutshell. And we're going to unpack this tonight. This is our big heading. If you're like a note taker, this is the thing to take down. Uh, because it is the last hour, we must reject anti-Christian theology and abide in Christ instead. Right? That's John's big, big idea for tonight. That's the one that we're going to look at. We're going to unpack it little by little. Because it is the last hour, we must reject anti-Christian theology and abide in Christ instead. Uh, let's unpack all that in a moment. Uh, but first, let's read 1 John 2, 18 through 20, 27 together. This is it. Uh, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, um, there's lots of uh, things in our own culture that swirl around this passage and maybe color our lenses for it. I pray that you would help us to have clear eyes, uh, to see your truth in it, um, whatever that may be. Uh, I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so remind us of the main idea, what we're looking at tonight. It's because it is the last hour, we must reject anti-Christian theology and abide in Christ instead. Now, let's unpack that by first looking at what it means that we are in the last hour. This, 
uh, thing that John is rooting all the other things in. Look with me at first at verses 18 and 19. Look with me there. As I've said, people who were once in the church have departed from the gospel, and now John must combat their false teaching. John calls these people antichrists. Now, despite the promise, or sorry, despite the premise of movies like The Omen or the Left Behind series, the term antichrist is simply a word John uses to describe people who have aligned themselves against Christ, right? The true Christ. Literally, they are anti, anti-Christ. And the Greek matches this assessment. The English word antichrist is actually just a transliteration of the Greek, antichristos. You can kind of hear it, antichrist, antichristos. Again, it just means one who is against Christ. But what are we to make of John's statement at the very beginning that it's the last hour? John roots all of his advice to come, rejecting Antichrist and abiding in Christ in this proclamation that it is the last hour. And surely this is apocalyptic imagery, right? This is the end of the world uh, image of super powerful end times figures called Antichrist ravaging the church. And if so, right, if that's what John has in mind, then he was kind of wrong, right? He was wrong in saying it was the last hour since Jesus still hasn't come back yet, even though these antichrists have appeared. Well, not, it's not like that exactly. John, uh, what he's doing here is he's expressing a theological truth far more than he's expressing a chronological truth. What do I mean by that? What I mean by this is, the, it, what I mean by that is this. It is theologically true that John and we also, by extension, are living in the last hour. That's a theological truth, though Jesus may not literally come back in the next hour, right? It's not chronologically true in terms of when it's going to happen, but it's theologically true that we are living in the last hour. What does that mean? We need to understand something about history from the Christian perspective, uh, if we're going to grasp this, and it's this. Everything in the whole history of all humanity centers on one event, and it's the cross. All history before the crucifixion led up to Jesus' death, and all history after the crucifixion follows Jesus' death. It follows in its wake. And when Jesus returns, that will be the end of all history, ushering in a completely new uh, eternal reality, a renewed earth. So it is appropriate to call the time after Jesus's death, the last hour, right? It is uh, for all intents and purposes. It is the last hour. Uh, however long that hour lasts, right? For, for God, that can be a long time. That's why in Matthew 24, Jesus can give a number of signs like false prophets and false Christ that will come into being at the end of the age. That's Jesus's own way of describing it. But he can also say in that very same chapter that all this stuff is going to happen, all these signs are going to happen. He can also say that he doesn't even know when that time is going to come. Uh, no one knows the hour, not even him. This, this much is certain. This is what Jesus is saying. This much is certain. Opposition will come after his death, but before his second coming. Right? To say that he's in the last days is just to say you're past the crucifixion and the next chapter is the end right? The next, the, this could be the last page of the book you're reading. Uh, you just don't know it yet. You're at least in the last chapter. These antichrists then, John says, are 
the opposition that they heard about from Jesus. They are proof that is indeed the final hour. It's almost the end. As John Stott puts it, if the first coming of Christ, we have a book by him on the book table, by the way, that I'd highly recommend. If the first coming of Christ evidenced the arrival of the last days, the coming of many antichrists proves that it's not just the last days, it's the final hour. A last desperate stand on the part of Christ's enemies is to be expected before the consummation. This was taking place in John's day. The stage was set for the end. Um, What John wrote was true, and it's still true. It is still the last hour. Are we not currently living in an age with many antichrists, some of them coming from the church itself, maybe deconverting or preaching something other than God's truth? Uh, Do we not live in a world that tells us that if we amass enough money, we'll be secure? If we express our romantic desires uninhibited, then we will find the significance we look for. If we can amass enough awards or gain enough followers on whatever platform we have, is that not going to give us the status and acceptance that we seek? That all things are supposed to find their end in our identity in Christ, but these things compete for that, and they are literally anti-Christs, all of them. Jesus is coming back, and John urges his readers to act accordingly, right? That's, that's what he's setting up. That's what everything is rooted in, is in this idea that Jesus is coming back, that there is a return, and that he is uh, the true Christ as opposed to these antichrists. Uh, John urges his readers to, to face that reality. But what does that look like? What does it look like to face that reality? Well, uh, first, John says, uh, because it is the last hour, we must reject anti-Christian uh, theology. And by anti-Christian theology, I don't mean uh, anti-us theology, like Christians. I mean anti-Christ, big C, Right? who Christ is. There's theology that rejects him. Look with me at verses 22 through 23. Look with me there. Here, John gives us one last test for us to check if we have true faith. But unlike the behavioral test of the past few weeks, this one is a theological test. It is possible to say that you are a Christian, uh, that you go to church, but not truly know Jesus. This is the reality we're confronted with with these tests is that Uh, it is not so simple to know whether or not you are a believer. And here John settles on why this describes the Antichrist, that they don't really know Jesus even if they confess that they do. They deny Jesus as the Christ. Specifically, in the context of the end of verse 22 and 23, this denial is about his relationship as son to the Father, right? He elaborates a little bit. Uh, We're told more specifically in 2 John 7, another letter that's really closely related to this one, possibly the same audience, uh, that this doctrinal error may have been a denial that God could become a man in the flesh. Regardless, John's point is clear. Only one who is opposed to Christ could question if Jesus is truly God's son, if he is really God himself. Uh, John doesn't mince words here uh, about the the consequences of, of this belief either. In verse 23, he says this, no one who denies the son has the father. In other words, we must make up our minds about Jesus before we make up our minds about anything else. 
or we truly cannot have a relationship with God. What, what John is trying to put in front of us is, uh, here's the reality of the Christian faith. What do you think of Jesus? What do you think of him? Do you want him? Do you know him? Everything else is secondary to that. You may think that you love God. You may think that you want him, a relationship with him. You may be a, a nice person. But it comes down to what do you think about Jesus? You cannot have the Father without him. Uh, we must make up our minds about him. In this last hour, when we make our decision as the world against Christ's rule, uh, he is the only way to God, right? It, uh, contrasting to the world's perception that there are lots of ways, Jesus is the only way, says John. But why is this so? Why is the only way to God through submitting to Jesus and knowing him? Well, part of the answer truly lies in Jesus' statement in, in John 17. It surely lies in that, that if you have seen Jesus, he'll, he'll echo John here. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. That's the claim Jesus makes about himself. He is the image of an invisible God. He is God made man. If you don't like him, you're not going to like who God is. You won't like God the Father. Uh, that's that's a, a, a theological reality, but also the gospel itself demands this reality. We need Christ's blood to approach a perfect God. Our sin leaves us in tremendous debt to God, and that debt has to be paid. Uh, all religion that leaves out that reality is not true. Imagine if you just tried to uh, ignore uh, payment to this university. If, if you were like, I don't think I'm going to pay tuition, but then you still showed up to classes, right? Do you think you could get a degree? No, there's a payment that has to happen, right? Uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, and so you take out student loans. But imagine if you just ignored your student loans. If you were like, you know what? I don't feel like paying them, so I'm not going to. Uh, they don't just magically go away, right? <laughs> they follow you. In fact, not even bankruptcy can, can separate you from your student loans. Uh, sorry about that reality. Some of you guys are looking very pained right now. I'm sorry. Um, but that's it, right? You can't just like, you can't just say like, I don't want to pay those. So I'm not going to. Uh, it's the same way with our sin. Uh, we can't, we all know deep down that we're not perfect. That we don't always do things perfectly. That we hurt people. We lie sometimes. We withhold truths. We're not the best friends. We're selfish. We all know deep down that these are some very, very important truths about who we are. And the question is, why would a perfect God love you in that sin? Right? All other roads that deny Jesus, that deny him as the Christ, as the son of God, cannot grapple with that reality. So we too, if we are to have a relationship with God, we must come through Jesus and his paying of our sin. Uh, and the reality, you might think, um, well, who doesn't believe that? Well, there's really no shortage of people who deny Christ as the son of God today. Uh, the reality is that there are Unitarian faiths that believe that Jesus is one of many ways. There are also more broadly just whole religions that do not accept Jesus as the only way, right? Uh, that outright say maybe it's not Jesus, uh, it's also, before we start pointing at just like other people and other faiths and like not critique ourselves, it's also this reality that's at the, the heart of spiritual idolatry. The things I mentioned earlier, 
uh, the anti-Christian behavior that I mentioned around money and relationships and accolades and all those things that want to give us identity, that we search after, that we look after, even though Jesus is supposed to be enough for us, that we hurt people to get. To pursue our own happiness over God's word is a denial of God's kingship, of, of Jesus's kingship. It's a denial of his divine authority. We reduce him to a mere teacher that gives opinions instead of the king of the universe who died for our sin and reconciled us to God. Uh, and I will say, if, if you say all religions basically believe the same thing, and it's very arrogant for me to stand up here and tell you what you should believe, I'll just say this, you're, you're guilty of the very thing that you're condemning, right? You're making an exclusive truth claim uh, that excludes not just Christians, but also Muslims, conservative Jews, and basically every other non-Western people in the world. We're very, very unique in the sense that we think everybody should have their own truth and no one should tell anybody else what's true or false. Basically, the whole rest of the world outside of the West does not operate on that premise. And you are actually being very narrow in demanding that of them. So, John is right to urge us away from anti-Christian theology that cannot get us reconciled to God and into a proper relationship with him. But John's point is not just to counsel us away from what we should not believe. He also tells us positively what we should, what we should believe. We must also abide in Christ, he says. And John advocates for this in two ways. Uh, This is how you abide in Christ. Uh, The apostolic word and the anointing of the spirit. Uh, We're just going to look at these two, uh, uh, one after the other. So we'll start with the apostolic word. Look with me at verse 24. How do we abide in Christ? Here, John tells his readers that they should abide in what they heard from the beginning. What they heard from the beginning. The gospel they first heard, the news that came to them at first, not the twisted teachings of these antichrists that want to deny Jesus. That is to be received with joy, laid up in their hearts and pursued with their lives. That is the truth. This apostolic teaching is the one sanctioned by Christ in Matthew 10, as he records, Matthew records, Jesus sending out the 12 disciples and promises that if people receive them, if people receive them as his messengers, they have received him. They are given authority to speak on Jesus's behalf. They have his authority to preach the good news that he has purchased with his blood. And this is the gospel that changes lives. And there is no other, right? What John is saying is, if you hear anything else, he's saying the same thing that Paul says in Galatians 1. If anybody preaches a different gospel, let them be accursed. I, I have already told you the good news that you heard at first. It's also, uh, uh, and, and, and that means that like this apostolic authority that we have in the Bible, collected by both the apostles and the people that they uh, were companions with them that believed the same things and contained the same teachings. Uh, This reality that that, that the Bible preaches that truth is also why we focus so much on the Bible, right? It's because John says it here. It's, It's not a secret that some see the Bible as irrelevant, maybe as a very archaic book backwards in some of the ways it talks about things, But Jesus speaks through it, and it has its authority in God. All human institutions and practices are under the authority of what was heard at the beginning, from the beginning. 
No person or church can evolve beyond its teachings or progress beyond its truth. We either submit to it or, John would say, ourselves against Christ. I uh, once was in a Facebook argument. Uh, Yep, that's right. I had no business being in a Facebook argument, but I was in one anyways. Uh, And the guy I was chatting with said something that struck me. I want to share it. Uh, He says this, uh, the problem with the church is that there is no room for nonconformity. The mainstream evangelical church is still 20 to 40 years from realizing that sins like homosexuality aren't really a sin, just as they realize that slavery is not a real sin. Here's at least what John's words mean in this, in this scenario. Here's at least what John's words mean. From the issue of slavery, right, to Arianism that was settled at the Council of Nicaea, right, from its very earliest days to even modern manifestations of the church, the church's greatest need has never been for it to progress, right? Here's the reality. It's not that the church ever needs to progress into a mature future that's 20 or 40 years from now, but rather the church needs to regress further into its infant truth that's found in the scriptures. We don't need to be progressive. The body of Christ's purest progress where we can observe it at its most beautiful and winsome has always come not from looking forward, but rather looking backward in reformation. Uh, That's why we're called Reformed University Fellowship, if you didn't know that, Uh, right? We look backward in in reforming ourselves. The church is always reforming itself with the truth of scripture, purging itself of sin just as we do in our individual lives. This, this action of returning again and again and again to the truth from the beginning, John says, is how we avoid wandering away from God. That is how slavery was outlawed. It's why black lives matter. It's why women are equal in power and glory to men. Uh, long before this, these kinds of things were culturally cool, the Bible was preaching them. And they'll be preaching them long after it's culturally cool. We would do well to listen to the Bible corporately and individually. If there's, if there's no room for nonconformity, this guy's uh, big claim and his anger against the church, it is because scripture is our authority and makes no room for opposing views to God's. That is why there is no room for nonconformity because it's either Christ's word or our own. And John makes that clear with the full backing of Jesus behind him. If he is wrong, so also you would claim is Jesus. We have to hear the word that was from the beginning. We heard it at the beginning. We can also read the word rightly uh, because of our reception of the Lord's spirit, right? So uh, now that would put a huge burden on us if I just said like, yeah, and so John says, one of the ways that you can abide in Christ is that you submit to his word. Then you're like, okay, well, that means I've got to read it really well and be really good at reading it all the time. And I'm just on my own and I don't know how to interpret some things. And here's, here's what I'll say is that you have the Lord's spirit helping you read it. Look at verses 20 and 27. Look at verses 20 and 27. John here doesn't explicitly mention the Holy Spirit, uh, but that word anoint is the same word that's used in Luke 4 to describe the descending of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. He's anointed like a dove at his baptism. It's It's also used that way to describe the Holy Spirit coming to people when they believe in Acts 4 and Acts 10. 
Likewise, Jesus also teaches that he will send the Holy Spirit as a helper in John 14. And this might sound very familiar to our passage. The Holy Spirit there will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Right? That should sound familiar, uh, that he's going to teach you about everything and is true and is no lie. But John is a little more vague here. Why he doesn't uh, explicitly mention the Holy Spirit is because he's probably uh, borrowing a concept from the pagan world that's around him. Uh, We know from an ancient letter by a man named Hippolytus, also happened in the first century, that this word anointing was also used to describe uh, pagan rituals uh, of initiation uh, during like worship of a local deity. What would happen is uh, to be anointed was to be initiated in this, like some mystery about the God or goddess. They would take you somewhere and explain, you know, maybe through signs or symbols or whatever, uh, the truth, the thing that like you could only know if you paid a certain amount for a sacrifice or you did a certain thing to become initiated. As John uses it, then the benefits we receive from our belief in Jesus is not some esoteric mystery, right? The knowledge of a deity that's been veiled, but rather the knowledge of the true God uh, from verse 20, mainly through the teaching of the word that's mentioned in verse 27. And the means of our, initi- our initiation, right? Whereas uh, one of the initiations that Hippolytus records is uh, they would cut open a bull and like completely bathe you in its blood, right? That's the means of your initiation. Uh, until you did that, you couldn't know the secrets. Well, the means of our initiation into Christian faith, into knowing who God really is, is not blood from bulls, but rather the receipt of the Holy Spirit. God comes to dwell in us. Meaning the Holy Spirit doesn't, uh, and this, this means the Holy Spirit doesn't come after you've gotten the right knowledge. It doesn't come if you believe the right way, or you do the right things, or you think the right way. It's not dependent upon you believing certain things or having the knowledge already. Instead, the Holy Spirit comes to us in our ignorance and makes the gospel beautiful and clear. Here's why this is all very good news. It means that the Bible is not left up to you to somehow unpack. It's not about you believing it hard enough or grasping it deep enough with whatever wisdom you can muster. And your walk with God into the truth is not left up to you to walk somehow on your own. Instead, abiding in Christ is a feat that is ultimately accomplished by God working through you. He accomplishes this abiding. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, the work you do in daily following him is actually God's power in you and through you as he has initiated you into his family. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy, but it does mean it's possible, right? Because if the opposite were true and it was just up to us, John's already been clear, right? We don't go God's way. Elsewhere in the letter, he's already said that. We are in the dark and God is in the light, but he has rescued us. And this is one more way of describing it, that through the means of the Holy Spirit, he enlivens our hearts to his goodness, to his gospel. Uh, that he is even working in our greater understanding of his word. Um, have you guys ever seen a little kid play t-ball? Have you ever taught like a little kid to play t-ball, right? It almost always starts the same way. This is how it almost always starts. You set up the tee, 
right? And if you don't, if you don't like teach the kid how to like hit it, what they'll do is they'll just hit the tee, right? They don't like hit the ball. It, it's just, I mean, even when you like tell them like, okay, you're going to try and hit the ball. They're like, got it. And they just knock over the tee, right? So what you'll do, what ends up happening is a lot of times if you're like a dad or whatever, like you'll come over and you'll grab right their hands and you'll put the bat in their hands and then you'll like swing it for them and hit it off the tee, right? Well, I've actually watched like little kids do this a few times and they almost all invariably do the same thing. They'll, the dad will come by and he'll hit it off the tee after they've knocked over the tee a few times and they'll actually hit the ball and they'll turn around to their, their dad and they'll say this, dad, I did it. Did you see? Right. And it's like, did you see? Like, uh, I don't think you were aware of the fact that I was literally like doing it for you. Right. Well, here's what happens. The dad doesn't say, right. The father doesn't say like, uh, no son, I actually did it. And you need to do it on your own next. No, he doesn't. You know, what he does. He laughs and gets very excited and says, yeah, you did. You did it. That's amazing. Yes. I'm so proud of you. And after all, it's true, isn't it? They did it, right? They were the one holding the bat. They swung it. Uh, It doesn't mean that uh, the reality that that God is on our side, that he's using the Holy Spirit to accomplish the work of of us understanding his word, of us following him more deeply, doesn't mean that like we don't work at all, that we don't swing the bat, that we don't try to follow him. What it does mean is that there's some possibility of success, that there's some possibility that you are going to make contact with the ball. Tonight, we've heard that we live in the last hour, and because of that reality, we have to make a choice. We must make a choice between Jesus as our authority or another God. Jesus as our authority or being anti-Christ. We are either pro him or against him. We've also heard that to be pro-Christ does not mean that we are alone in our endeavor. God speaks to us through his power, uh, or through his word by the power of his spirit and enables us to abide in his goodness and in Jesus. So we say with John, because it is the last hour, we must reject anti-Christian theology and abide in Christ instead. Let's pray.